Welcome in to the Wednesday Bible study, and here we are again uh, in the Rick and Bubba studios, and, and right now, uh, for all practical purposes, we are still virtual only, but as things are starting to get better uh, with uh, the pandemic, and now that we've got uh, three different vaccines out there, we've got a lot of folks who've already had it, so we're reaching the herd immunity, things are getting, we, see, we can see some light at the end of the tunnel, so keep paying attention each week because uh, I think now sooner than later uh, we will be allowing uh, men to come back into the studio and actually be in the room live uh, like we did for so many years but now we are exactly a year of, um, of not having uh, you know a, a large group of men in here in the studio but hopefully we can change that uh, sooner than later so be, be listening for that cue and I'll, I'll let those of you that are in the Birmingham Alabama area that normally used to be part of this in the room and you've been having to deal with, uh, you know, watching it on YouTube or listening to an archive, hopefully that in-person. Because, you know, as much as we love the technology, and I'm so thankful there's so many of you that can watch this, and for some of you, all you've ever done is watch it on YouTube or, or listen to or watch an archive, and I'm glad that's available for you. But for those that can get in a room and sit face-to-face, -face, uh, there's just nothing that really quite replaces that uh, as far as apples to apples. So hopefully we can start that again with the, the group of men that used to have, have been accustomed to coming here for, for many years. So if you, uh, you know the series that we're talking about right now, we're doing a series called Knowing God, the concept from the J.I. Packer book, Knowing God. And what J.I. Packer wanted us to understand, that it is possible to know a tremendous uh, of, of knowledge about God, but still not really know God. And, and this book is focused on what it looks like to know God versus just to know about God. Now, you do know the manchurch.com. We just celebrated our, our one-year anniversary, our one-year anniversary. Uh, and if you go to themanchurch.com right now because of our anniversary, uh, dealing with any of the devotionals that we have available, or if you are a church or community group that you want to get the curriculum, you can use the code MANCHURCH10. That's MANCHURCH, and then put the number 10 at the end of that, and we will uh, save you money, uh, a little discount for our one-year anniversary at themanchurch.com. Uh, we have a 40-week curriculum called The Pursuit. It's been out for a year. Uh, I think we're about 130-something churches that are using that right now. Uh, we're excited about that. But our second 40-week curriculum called Real Men, it'll take on eight men of the Bible over 40 weeks. You'll spend five weeks on each man uh, in the Bible, where the first curriculum was focused on the pursuit of Christ-centered masculinity, that perfect example. Real Men of the Bible will be a 40-week journey dealing with men who are just as flawed as any of us, and we'll see in them the way we should do things. We'll also see in them the ways that we should not do things, and ultimately at the end of it realize the only thing good about any of us is our relationship with God. Uh, so uh, that one coming out at the end of March. So if you are a church or a group that you've already finished the pursuit curriculum and you're ready for the next one, uh, it'll be out at the end of March, or you just prefer uh, the curriculum about the real men versus the pursuit, now you have some choices. So, so look for that. Also, out and about doing stuff this week. If you are uh, watching or, or listening to uh, this Wednesday's Bible study on March the 3rd, uh, know that coming up Friday night, March the 5th, I'll be at the True Grit Men's Conference coming up at Union Number 3 Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, where uh, we're in the Rick and Bubba Studios, where Bubba and I started the show there 27 years ago. So looking forward to getting back to what is kind of the, the home of the start of the Rick and Bubba show. That's Friday night. That's a ticketed event. Uh, coming up on Sunday, 
Uh, this is uh, sold out. There are no seats for this, but looking forward to the men of Crossroads Baptist Church and Warrior, they are going to do the curriculum. So this will be their first man church. We'll gather. We'll have high challenge. Then they'll plug into our curriculum for high equipping. They're doing the pursuit curriculum, and that starts uh, on Sunday. March the 12th, same thing. We'll be in Op, Alabama at Westview Baptist Church. They, too, are starting the curriculum, but this will be their first man church, and I'm honored to be speaking there and plugging them into the curriculum. Uh, there's others, McGee, Mississippi. Uh, you've got a man church and plugging into the curriculum coming up on March 25th. And if, uh, same thing in Lindale, Georgia. Uh, we'll have kind of a low country boil there. Uh, it'll be at First Baptist Church of Lindale, Georgia, but then they'll be putting you in uh, to the 40-week curriculum. So uh, all those are available and many more by going to BurgessMinistries.com and, and looking under events. If you kind of want to weed out things that don't involve uh, the man church services and you just want to go somewhere where somebody's doing the curriculum or the strategy or you want to go to something that is, uh, you know, man church only, if you go to themanchurch.com under events, you'll find those specific events there too. Some of it's repetitive on both websites, but if you're trying to kind of weed out anything other than the man church stuff, including our other speakers and our other teachers, not just me, you can find those man church services and events by going to themanchurch.com. All right, so let's uh, open up in a word of prayer and let's dive right in uh, to this week's lesson. Lord Jesus, thank you for an opportunity to unpack. And today we're going to focus on what is your inspired word about you. Uh, there, there's, there's no one that describes you more perfectly than, than you uh, in your inspired word. And also uh, we find out things about ourselves and our relationship with you. Uh, uh, from your word. Every, everything else is flawed if it doesn't come from you, and we're going to really dive into that today. So you help us to understand uh, with our finite minds as best we can to, uh, to consume what you are teaching us today uh, through our brother J.I. Packer and your word of God. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So that's what this session is called. It's session 11 of the series of Knowing God. It comes from chapter 11 in the book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Uh, and uh, if, if you look right out of the gate, here's what this chapter says. There's two facts about the triune Jehovah. You know, we, we serve a triune God, uh, three persons, one God. Two facts about the triune Jehovah are assumed. Uh, if they're not actually stated uh, uh, in every single biblical message, you know, specifically, they're always assumed throughout Scripture. The first is that he is king. Jehovah is king. Uh, like you, you've heard our brother Steve Farrar say many times, Human beings can, uh, can achieve high places as far as the earth is concerned, and human beings may elevate themselves to, to be in a high place, but only Jehovah is the most high. He, 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 he is the most high. So we see him throughout Scripture as king, absolute monarch of the universe, ordering all its affairs, working out his will, underline that, his will, or write it down, and all that happens within it. See, sometimes... We may act confused, but we're confused because we're talking about things that are not God's will. There's nothing, God never gets his will wrong. Now, we may not like his will, or we may, may find something outside of his will, but if we're inside his will, then he is working things out exactly the way he would have them go. The second fact that we find in Scripture is that he, the king of kings, the most high, he speaks. He speaks, uttering words that express his will in order to cause it to be done. You know, God is the perfect teacher. Uh, let me tell you what, what kind of teacher I don't like. I don't like a teacher, and we've taken this on with some of the 
flawed and, and kind of, frankly, subpar attempts at men's ministry is some of the problems in men's ministry as far as, as, far as teaching men is we shout a bunch of things at them, but then we don't tell them how to do it. Uh, so, I mean, you can scream spiritual leader at a man all day long, but if you haven't shown him how to do a spiritual leader, uh, he has no idea what you're talking about. Well, God doesn't operate that way. Uh, God not only it, it has his will that he's going to work out, but he also is willing to speak to us to clearly tell us uh, what is his will, and then he teaches us how to be in it. Uh, he didn't leave us hanging. Uh, now, I, a lot of, I, I spend a lot of time of my life uh, not understanding God's will because I didn't take the time to go to his inspired word to find out what he said it was and wasn't. Uh, so he's not silent on his will. So the, the theme of God's word um, is, is the focus of this session. You know, we, we've talked about some other things, but this session, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna really land uh, on God's perfect word, uh, that he has been, he's been speaking uh, you know, in many ways throughout Scripture. Number one, the first thing we see in Scripture, if we just you know, go to the book of Genesis, what do we find? We find that you know, right out of the gate that he's going to speak um, uh, in the sphere of creation and his providence. This is where we find him uh, in Genesis 1. You, you see the let there be fill in the blank. So now we see God in the beginning when he's speaking, he's, he's speaking things into creation. He's also speaking from the point that he is, um, that he is sovereign, that he is it. Uh, but he also, this is the beautiful thing about Scripture, not only do we see him speaking things like creation, not only do we see him speaking things about his providence, but we also see the creator of heaven and earth, the great I am, the beginning and the end. Who created God? No one. God is the beginning of all things, but he takes time which is just mind-boggling to me as just this, you know, limited, pathetic human being is that God, the, the king of kings, the beginning, the creator, also takes time to speak to me personally. That's amazing. I mean, that, that, really, that really blows my mind. And, and there's three themes that you will see throughout God's word, and we need to understand those as we now walk through this session today, okay? You're going to see in God's word that he's going to speak about his, his law, his commandments. Now, you'll see this. He's going, to, he's going to speak about his promises, things that he says he will fulfill. Uh, you know, These are things we need to know. And then we also see him speaking um, through his word, through the testimony of other human beings on what he has done for them or maybe what's happened to them when they opposed him. So we, we can see his law and his commandments. We see his promises and we also see testimony uh, throughout God's Word. And these three themes are in the Old Testament, they're in the New Testament. Uh, but, so, but what it also does, even though he's, he's speaking about his law, he's speaking about his promises, he's speaking about testimonies of human beings and, and the things they've been through with him, the Word of God also allows us to know God personally. Personally. Do you remember the first time you heard that? And I remember growing up in the Bible Belt, they would use this phrase, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you remember hearing that? And uh, I remember being a, a, a kid saying, I have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I believe in Jesus, but, but I don't know, really know what they mean by this. It just became kind of a phrase that was throwing, thrown around, what I call church speak. But, but what, what they really were talking about is that God is, is king. God is king. He is most high. We've talked about this in some of our other sessions. 
He's most high, but that doesn't mean that he's distant. And, and we've talked about that in some other sessions, but it really needs to come back into this session because of the way he operates through his word, because at times through his word, we, 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 we accomplish what, what the word should accomplish, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit is that we become in all of God. You know, the, the early church in the New Testament in, in Acts chapter 2, you, you see when the church is established, when God was adding the numbers to the church, he only added numbers to the church that, 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 that Luke said, hey, these first people, after they received the Holy Spirit, they were continually in all, A-W-E, in all, because I'm a Southerner, I want to be sure you know what I'm saying, in all of God. And so you can get, you can get it. We need to be in awe of God. But what we need to be careful is that because we are acknowledging his, his, his place in the universe, the most high, just because he's high and lifted up does not mean he's distant from us. He's allowed us to know him personally. Yes, he's king and he is above us, but he is not distant from us. Uh, God created us to have a relationship with him. Uh, but, um, but what we have to understand is that we cannot um, have a relationship with someone that we don't know. And we've talked about this for six going on seven years in this Wednesday Bible study. I cannot have a relationship with someone that I don't know. And I certainly, as Jesus said, those who love me, you know, speaking as the Son and the triune God, which means if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's speaking for, for every part of the triune God, he says, if you love me, then you'll obey me. Well, I can't have a personal relationship with someone that I barely know, and I certainly will never love somebody that I barely know, and if I don't love them, I'm not going to obey them because I, I, I haven't taken step one. And that, that's this, seek me and you will find me. You know, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then the second is like the first, you know, love people the way you uh, treat them and love them the way you want to be treated in love. But notice what he said first. I can't do that second one until I do the first one. So if you don't know God personally, if you don't have that intimate relationship with God, it is not because he has kept himself from you. It's because you or me, if I'm in that situation, I'm not pursuing him. I'm not seeking him. James 4, verses uh, 7 and 8, change my life. Submit yourself then to God. Action. Resist the devil. Action. Repent. That, that means repent. Turn from sin. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Now, notice that didn't say, uh, you know, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and God will come to you. No, it said you come near to God, he'll come near to you. I'm seeking him, and then he meets me. He's not asking me to come the whole way, but he is asking me to take action. So, uh, so if you want to, to have a, a, a personal relationship with God, you've got to get to know him. And he moves us to know him. Why? Because if we get to know him, then that's when we actually love him. That, that's what this is all about. He knows obedience is going to flow from us knowing him because we'll love him. Because to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. You know, like, like Christ said in our study of the Gospel of John, uh, abide in me and I abide in you, abide in my word and my word abides in you, then, then I will produce fruit in you because apart from me you can do nothing and I'll produce the fruit in you proving that you are my disciple. 
So what did we learn back at the Gospel of John? Same thing we're talking about today. A disciple produces fruit, and anyone who produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit is a disciple. But where does it flow from? Abiding in Christ, abiding in God. That's where it flows from. Not a code of conduct, not legalism. It flows from the power of God, but you can't access the power of God if you don't know it. So God sends his word to us uh, in character and, uh, and, and also in, in two things. I love this. God's word, J.I. Packer says, comes to us for, for two reasons. Information, things we need to know about him, we're, we, we're learning about him, but also in the character of not just information, but also the character of invitation. I like that. So, so what God is saying with the Word of God, it's not just about gathering information. See, that's back to knowing about God only. Yes, it's about gathering information, but it's also about God offering invitation. Man, I hope somebody's writing that down. Uh, so, so the Word of God is about information that is provided, yes, but it's also about God offering invitation to know me, to know me. So it, it kind of changes the way you study the Bible uh, if you kind of get that, uh, that mindset. So looking at uh, some of the concepts that are in this chapter 11, and for some of you, session 11, as uh, you're allowing me to, to walk through this book with you, uh, and that is the God who speaks. So, so, so the God who speaks. Um, Genesis chapter 1, we talked about this. Uh, part of the purpose of, of the chapter is to assure us that, that uh, every item in our natural environment has been set there by God. Have you really thought about that? So when you, when you go to chapter 1 of Genesis, what, what, what God's trying to do here is make you understand that he spoke everything into creation, so everything you see and where you see it has been set there by God. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now the second verse pictures the state of affairs in terms of which you know, the detailed analysis of God's work is to be given. It is a state in which the earth was lying. What, before God did this, it was lying waste. It was lying in waste. It was empty of life. It was dark. It was completely waterlogged. And look, I can go through the dispensations and all that. There's a lot of things we could unpack about the state of the earth before he said, let, let there be light. We do not have time for that in today's broadcast or today's Bible study. But let me tell you, it can get quite deep. But in verse 3, he tells us how amid this chaos and, and, and how it was just kind of empty and void that God spoke. And God said this, and we're going to concentrate on this. We're not going to talk about why it was empty and void and all those different theories. We're going to talk about where the Bible starts. And the Bible starts by mentioning that it was empty and void, but more importantly saying, and God said, let there be light. And then what happened? Well, immediately there was light. <laughs> that was it. So, so the let there be starts uh, seven times more. We see him saying let there be in, in, in verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20. Verse 24, verse 26, that's all there, let there be's as it was spoken. Step by step, things sprang uh, into, at that time, because this is before the fall, they sprang into being, but they also sprang into what? And this is the thing you can't miss about God's character, because he tells us right out of the gate, order, order. God is a God of order. Don't you start looking for God in chaos. Let me tell you who you can find, let me tell you who you can find in chaos. That is the devil himself and all the demons that are still with him, okay? That, they love chaos. Evil loves chaos, but God loves order, and he is a God of order. And so before the fall, everything was set 
where it was supposed to be and the way it was supposed to be. So what's important about that? Why is that important? Why is that important? Because that means that whatever God showed us when he created the earth and us in the beginning, the way it was created before the fall was the way it was intended to be and the way that he approved it to be. That's important, especially in the day you're living in. The days you're living in, what did the writer of Hebrews say? Us, hey, walk as the wise, not as the unwise, and be aware of the time in which you live. Know what's going on. So this is, matter of fact, I, had, I remember the, the friend of mine, the first one who pointed this to me, and I'm so thankful for him, and I thank God for using him. I'm out there chasing God's standard of marriage and, you know, and, and all the different places where, you know, uh, you know, where fornication and adultery and homosexuality are called sin. I'm concentrating there, which there's nothing wrong with that because that, that's in Scripture too. But I remember the first time my friend said, no, 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 Rick, go back to creation. Go back to creation. God established what he approved right there. He said that, that he made uh, mankind, and he made that in their image, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the triune Jehovah, and there was a male that was made, and he said that, uh, that the, everything he had created so far, that none of these things accomplish the goal of the perfect helper or the perfect partner for the male Adam that he had created from the dust. And then he made woman unique because she didn't come from the dust. She came from Adam. And he said, I will now make for him the perfect helper and the perfect partner, meaning it had not been created yet. We don't have a fall yet, so all this is right. And he created woman. That's what he always intended. And nowhere in Scripture do you ever see him change that standard. That's the better way to walk that out. And, uh, and that's, that's why this is important. So, so anyway, there we go. So, uh, so God started with, uh, you know, with creation. And then look, look what happens when we get down. You know, we, we go through all these different things and, and, and he sprang everything into being in order, as I said, day and night. Verse 5, sky and sea. Verse 6, sea and land. Verse 9, uh, they were separated out. Green vegetation shows up in verse 12. The heavenly bodies, the stars in the universe, that shows up in 14. Fish and fowl show up in verse 20. We've got animals in 24. And finally, in verse 26, man himself was made in their appearance, the triune Jehovah, and all this was done by God simply speaking it or by the word of God uh, and you, you'll, you'll find some reference if you want to cross-reference some of this uh, in other parts of the, uh, of the Bible. Write this down. Psalms 33, 6 and 9. So Psalms 33, then verses 6 and verses 9. The writer of Hebrews covers this in chapter 11, verse 3. And then 2 Peter, you'll see this because in 2 Peter he's talking about how he's going he's gonna, to uh, refine it by fire. You see 2 Peter talking about some of this in... Um, chapter 3, verse 5. So think about everything that's happened here, but I want you now to focus on verse 28 in Genesis. Here is God. He's gone from speaking things into creation. Not a lot of personal stuff going on right now, but it changes in, in verse 28. In verse 28 of, of Genesis, now we see this other part of God, and that's that personal relationship that he has with us human beings. 
Because remember, everything he's uttered now before, before the fall, he's just said it and there it was. But he now will speak directly in verse 28 to them, the man and the woman that he's created. He goes from just throwing things out and making things happen to turning and saying, I created you out of dust, Adam. I created you, uh, Eve, uh, from Adam's body. And now I want to address you two personally. And here's the part we got to understand about order. We got to understand about holiness. We got to understand about God's will and the way he wants things done, which since he is perfect, those things are perfect. Note the categories in which God's utterances to them in the rest of the story fall. God's first word to Adam and Eve is a word of command. First thing he tells them is what he wants them to do. And what does he say? He, he summoned them to fulfill humankind's vocation of ruling the created order. He tells them in verse 28 to be fruitful, meaning he wants them to reproduce themselves as husband and wife and have dominion over what has been created. So he, he gives them a commandment. Now, think about the Word of God. What do we say the Word of God is? Laws and commands, testimony. Now look what, look, look what comes up next. He follows with a word of testimony because in verse 29, he says, Behold, and he begins to give testimony about what has already taken place. And, and he explains the green plants. He explains the crops and the fruits that they have been made for humans and animals to eat. Next, we get a prohibition from him. Uh, hey, he, 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 has, he, he has now said you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so don't miss that. So, so here comes the Word of God. First of all, He gives a command, be fruitful and have dominion over what I have. He gives testimony, here's what I've created and why I've created it, and here's what you are going to do with it. And then He comes with a prohibition, which means what? God doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us what not to do. Right? And, and so whatever He tells us to do is the right thing, and whatever He tells us not to do should be avoided. And he's doing this before the fall. This is also where I have a problem with some, well, I'm going to stay out of that. Never mind. That's, that's, thank you, Lord, for correcting me on that. I'm not going to go down that road. That's not going to accomplish anything. All right, so, so here's what he says. Let's, let's concentrate on what we're talking about today. So now after the fall, God comes near to Adam and Eve, and he speaks to them again, but now he adds something that is also part of the Word of God because he didn't really need this before the fall because he had everything set up the way it should have been. And then he says, here's a command, here's a, a prohibition, I'm prohibiting this, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you to do that, and I'm telling you about what I made and why I made it, but now we have a fall. Now after the fall, Adam and Eve get addressed personally again, but this time his words are words of a promise. So here comes the first time now Scripture starts becoming about his promises. Now these promises he gives Adam and Eve, there's some favorable and also some unfavorable promises. Uh, for while he undertakes on, on one hand that the woman's seed shall bruise the serpent's head, meaning Satan is not going to win this thing. I'm going to redeem humankind. He talked y'all into doing something you shouldn't have done, and, and, and I allowed that choice to take place. I allowed that test to happen. You failed it, but I will come back and redeem that. I will bring you back to the garden, and you will bruise the serpent's head. But on the other hand, he ordains for Eve to have grief, Results for sin, 
grief and childbirth, for Adam to be frustrated in his work. Remember, work was not was not a, a, a curse. It's unfruitful work and frustration that became part of the fall. Work itself was fine. We were going to work. But then once the fall happens, we turned into frustrating work that sometimes leads light. It's not going anywhere. And then here comes the promise that's really the tough one. But again, he's going to work out another promise to redeem it. He says, now because y'all did this, you're going to die. I told you, I mean, I said, if you eat of that tree that you would die, and Satan tried to tell you that that wouldn't happen. But again, if I said something's going to happen, it's going to happen. So within the compass of three short chapters, we see the Word of God in all the relations in which it stands to the world and to man within it. On one hand, we see the Word of God saying God's going to fix man's circumstances and his environment. And on the other hand, he's commanding our obedience. He's inviting his trust and open up, opening up us him to the mind of, of his maker. So r- really, if you go to the first three chapters of Genesis, J.I. Packer is saying, and he's saying correctly, you really kind of get how the Bible lays out for the rest of the Bible the, things, the themes we're going to see. So the whole Bible insists that all circumstances and events in the world are determined by the Word of God. The Creator's omnipotent, let there be, and it happens, Scripture describes all that happens as the fulfilling of God's Word from the changes in the weather, which we find in Psalms 147, 15 through 18. Do you, do you know why? And also Psalms 148, uh, verse 8. Do you know why when Jesus told the weather what to do and the weather obeyed, why Peter said that he was, he was unworthy and he, and, he, and he fell on his face and he said, I'm wretched, I shouldn't even be here. you know why they acted like they did toward Jesus when he did that? Because they knew these Psalms. They knew that only God could control the weather. They knew that. They knew that if God told the weather what to do, that it would obey. And Jesus basically is calling back and saying, I keep telling you I'm God. I'm going to take this storm and tell it to be quiet. Do you remember what the psalmist told you about God? And they were like, yes. Yes, we're with God now. He really is God. And, uh, and so anyway, so this has been in Scripture uh, in the Old and, and New Testament. So remember also that, uh, that the, the, the Scripture tells us about the rise and the fall of nations. The fact that the Word of God really determines world events was the first lesson that God taught Jeremiah when he called him to be a prophet. Listen to what what God told Jeremiah. God told him, Today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now how in the world is God telling a prophet that he's in charge of the nations? He's not a king. Jeremiah's a prophet. Why is God saying this to Jeremiah? He wasn't a statesman, but a prophet. He was God's messenger. How could a man with no official position, whose only job was to talk, be described as God's appointed ruler of the nations? Well, simply because he had the words of the Lord in his mouth. That's why. (laughs) Those of us that know the word of God, we know exactly what's going to happen. And so you don't have to be a king to be the ruler of the nations because if I have God's words in my mouth, he's the ultimate ruler of the nations. And when I speak what God's word says about the nations, it's right. I don't have to be a politician or a statesman or a king to do that. Jeremiah had the word of God. If God's speaking directly to you and you're now handing, saying what he says to say, you are ruling over all the nations because you're talking about you're, you're speaking on behalf of the one who does. And uh, any word that God gave him to speak about the destiny of the nations, guess what? It's going to happen. 
So really, Jeremiah knew more about the nation than the king of the nation knew because God told him, here's what's going to happen. And, you know, God says, these kings, they, they're nothing in my hands. They come and they go. And so to fix it, it in Jeremiah's mind, God gave him his first vision. Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah said, well, I see a rod of, of almonds. I see, I see. He said, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. He's saying, look, I'm going to show you something, and you know this is, this is my word, and I'm going to show it to you. So anything that I show you that's going to happen, it's going to happen. And he taught Jeremiah that, and you find that in Jeremiah 1, uh, verses 11 and 12. He said, I will give you the word to perform everything that I tell you. So, so we know that, um, that, that God's word that he has spoken to us, he is the God who speaks. And he, he started speaking to human beings, and he still does. What's the next thing we got to know about God's word? We got to know that it's absolute truth. Absolute truth. You cannot, I mean, you talk about going down that road of chaos. If you ever get to the point, and this is rampant, rampant, not just in the world, but inside some of the contemporary churches, and this is this concept that somehow the Bible is mostly true or somewhat true. I mean, there's some places that don't think it's true at all. I mean, you can find a church in the United States of America right now that does not adhere to the Bible being the inerrant Word of God. You can find them. They're, they're out there. Matter of fact, they're plentiful. But we have to understand this. Here's what the Bible says about itself. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, its author is the God of truth. That's in Psalms 31.5. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 65.16. So Psalms 31.5 and Isaiah 65.16. Exodus 34.6 says that the word of God is abundant in truth. His truth reaches unto the clouds. Psalms 108, verse 4. This, that it is universal and it is limitless, therefore his word is truth. That's John 17.17. 17. All your words are true. Psalms 119, that big long one, because that's verse 160. All your words are true. 2 Samuel 7.28 says, Thou art God, and thy words are true. So the Bible is, is God speaking to us, and God is speaking to us truth. And you hear this sometimes when people start all this stuff, that somehow human beings got in and corrupted the, uh, the, the God-inspired Word of God. So be, be careful with that because you, you can't really have it both ways. You can't say that you believe that God spoke creation, uh, you know, just spoke it into creation. You really can't say that you believe that God is able to defeat death. You can't say that you believe that God can control the weather and, and that God can, can do anything, but somehow... Mankind was able to fool God and undermine him and get past him that God did not have the power to make sure that his word was communicated to us correctly. He just didn't have power over that. You can't really have it both ways. Either you don't believe in God, so then you don't believe the word of God. That's fine. But you can't go over here. I mean, that's going to condemn you to hell, but at least it's consistent. But you can't go over here and say, I believe everything about God except that he could correctly get his word to us and with no flaw in it. You can't do that because somehow you're saying that God is limited by mankind trying to get out a fake uh, word 
on, on his behalf. That, that, that He just can't stop it. See, that's a ridiculous statement. And that's the reason why you have to realize that when the, when the Bible says the author of this is the God of truth and everything in the Bible is true, that probably is more consistent with a belief in God. So another thing that we know about the Bible is what? That it cannot lie, because God cannot lie. Titus tells us this. And uh, Titus 1, verse 2, we see about God's inability to lie in Numbers 23, 19, 1 Samuel 15, 29, uh, and then in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, um, all tells us that it is that his words are true and that they can't be anything other than true. They are the index of reality. Have you ever heard it described that way? I love that. What is the Bible? The index of reality, meaning anything outside of the Bible is not true reality. They show us as thing, show us things, and I love this. The Bible shows us things as they really are. Well, that's good. The Bible shows us things as they really are. If you don't understand the Bible and you're winding your way through this world and you're in all this mess and you don't have the Word of God and you don't know the Word of God, everything you're seeing, everything you're feeling is not the way they really are. You don't have truth. You don't have truth. And also, it's showing us in the future, according to whether we heed God's word uh, or not, it shows us what happens. So let's work out uh, a couple of connections here. So God's commands, that means God's commands are true. So however he says to do things, that's true. That's the way things should be done. Uh, again, back at Psalms 119. I told you it was long. It covers a lot. Psalms 119. Now this is verse 151. And this is what the psalmist says. All your commands are true. Why, why are they so described? First, because they have stability. Uh, they, they, uh, they have permanence. Uh, they're, they're setting forth what God wants to see in human lives in every age. Second, because they tell us uh, the unchanging truth about our own nature. So what, why is it important to know that His commandments are true? Well, we just talked about it. We understand ourselves. We, we under, you, know, you ever do this thing, why do I do the things I do? The Bible says, I'll tell you why you do them. Because you've gone against God and everybody's tried to go their own way and now you're, you have a fallen flesh and your spirit is dead and until you're redeemed, the things you do, you know, the, you remember that statement I said, I, I can't stand, I've always hated it when somebody's undesirable and somebody says, oh, don't be so tough on so-and-so and think they're undesirable. That's just the way they are. Well, I know. That's why I find them undesirable. I don't want them to be the way they are. Well, that's what God is saying. God's saying, I don't want you to be the way you are because of the fall. Well, you can't even understand that you need to be redeemed if you don't first understand why you are the way you are. And that's the reason why that God's commandments are true. And, and, and so he's saying, this is the way that I want to see human beings live in every single age. And this is why you are the way you are. I'm telling you even about your own nature. And I think that's important. It shows us what we were made to be, and it teaches us how to truly be human and it warns us against moral self-destruction. This is a matter of great importance and one which calls for much consideration, especially at the present time. I want you to realize that. The Bible is saying that the fallen state of your humanity and my humanity, and sadly, I can look into this camera for those who are watching and tell you with zero reservation that when the Bible says that if you go your own way and you reject God and you refuse redemption, 
that eventually you will cease to be, you'll start becoming less like a human and you'll start becoming more like an animal. Because part of the fall is we're, we're losing our perfect humanity that he created and we are, we are devolving. Uh, the flesh will eventually take us into animal-like behavior. Just look around. Everybody look around at our depraved society. Everybody look into your own depraved life. Rick, look at your past depraved life. Did you act more like a human being created in God's image or did you act more like an animal? I can tell you that I acted more like an animal. And then when I was redeemed, he started redeeming that original nature that he created, trying to usher me back in to the presence of, of, of a holy God. He's taking me back into the place that I, that I should have been. And, uh, and, and, and until I'm redeemed, that can't really take place. Uh, so that's important. So, so we know that, we know that God's, God's word is absolutely true, and we also know uh, that God speaks to us personally. And so the first concept of his truth is that God's commandments are true. What's the second one? God's promises are true. That's important. His commandments are true. Yes, that's very important that we know that. But then we also find hope because we also know that God's promises are true for God keeps them. All right, now let me, let me, let me, let me give you a little caution there. Okay, a little caution here. God is going to keep his promises. That includes the good ones and the bad ones. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here, why that's important? So if God promises that he will redeem all who sincerely in their heart repent and submit and confess that he is Lord and believes that God took on human flesh and believes that the Son came off his throne, took on human flesh, paid the price for sin on the cross, went into the tomb, was resurrected on the third day, and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father, if we believe sincerely in our heart as we repent and come at His authority, His promise is that we will be redeemed. Hallelujah. So He'll keep that promise. But you know what else He promised? That His wrath will come down to all who are unredeemed. And I can tell you that's going to happen too. Because He doesn't change His character. He's holy, and he's promised that he'll refine this, this fallen creation by fire, Second Peter. He's going to refine it by fire, and there's going to come a day that all who oppose him that are not redeemed, he will destroy. So God's promises are good news for the redeemed. They are bad news for those who are unrepentant because he's going to keep both those promises. Uh, so, but, but we can always, you know, how many times have you been in a, a difficult situation and somebody said, look, cling, cling to the, the promises of God. Cling to the promises of God. And, uh, and that, of course, is, um, is certainly important. But let's talk about the promises. So where, what does Scripture say about his faithfulness? Uh, it say, uh, uh, Psalms 36.5 says his faithfulness uh, reaches to the skies. Um, Psalms 36, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms 119.90 says, Great is your faithfulness. Um, your faithfulness continues through all generations. Uh, we also have, How does God's faithfulness show itself? By his unfailing fulfillment of his promises. He is a covenant keeping God. He never fails those who trust his word. Think about Abraham. He told Abraham that he was going to give him a son. Abraham didn't believe that. Sarah laughed at it. 
But did God give the son? Yes. Where did Abraham make a mistake? He didn't wait. He doubted that God was going to fulfill his promise. He came up with some side plan that was sin and caused a lot of problems. But did that keep God from fulfilling the promise that he had made? No. He, Isaac still got here, even though Abraham and Sarah tried to go another way. Uh, now, they had a mess because they didn't wait, but he did fulfill the promise. These things used to be understood. This used to be the way we looked at the Word of God, but a lot of liberal theology has found its way into the church, something that Second Peter warned us about. You know, First Peter, remember we did that study, persecution from outside the church. Second Peter is about false teachers uh, rising up from within the church. And now, more than ever, we see that the Scriptures and the Word of God, um, the, the process of, of uh, meditating on His promises, uh, basing our prayers on His promises, venturing into faith in our ordinary daily life just as far as the promises will take us, this kind of behavior, this kind of sp these spiritual disciplines have all but been sneered at now and made fun of. You know, it, it doesn't mean, though, that the Bible changed its call to these disciplines. It just means for some reason we've decided to, to think that these things are not important. So we know that God's Word is absolutely true. God's commandments are true. We know that His promises are true. So I love this. So what's the response of the Christian as we get ready to close? The response of the Christian to, to the things we know about the Word of God. Now, remember what we said about what the word Christian means. This is important. This, is, this was a, uh, a new term in the New Testament that was only mentioned a couple of times, uh, one time derogatory. Then Peter says, don't let it be derogatory. Wear it as a badge of honor. But Dallas Willard points out correctly and others where I think we've made a mistake in the Western church. That's why I want to be sure we understand this word Christian now. What really we're saying in this book is what's the response of the disciple of Christ? Because in the New Testament, no one was ever called a Christian until they were already a disciple. And what we've done is we just call somebody a Christian the day that they claim they believe. When that's, that's not really the way to go. That's a convert. Uh, but everybody in the New Testament that was labeled Christian, they were already a disciple. And, and we don't do that uh, like we should in a lot of churches. Uh, so I, I want to say the better thing to say is that is what is the response of the disciple of Jesus to what we know about the Word of God. So true disciples of Jesus, or you could say true Christians, are people who acknowledge and live under the Word of God. Remember we said one time when I, I tried to probably give you a little Calhoun County oversimplification of, uh, of, of sometimes these deep biblical concepts, and we talked about that what is a disciple in its simplest form? Well, it's someone who says what God says to say and does what God says to do. And what have we talked about a lot? It's impossible for you to say what God says to say if you don't know what he said to say. And it's impossible to do what God said to do and to not do what God said not to do if you don't know what he said to do and you don't know what he said not to do. I would think that would be very difficult. So the, the, the disciple of Christ, the Christian, really is the person who acknowledges and lives under the Word of God. The, the follower of Jesus knows the Word of God uh, and says, I live under it. 
I mean, can, can you imagine? I mean, I know some people take this concept, which is, in my opinion, child abuse, where they think the way to go about their children is to give their children no direction whatsoever and just let them turn into whatever. Let them find it on their own. Well, that, that's problematic because now you've got a stressed, confused child who has no idea what is expected of him or her. They have no idea. So now they just kind of wander in this nothingness when really they would feel comfortable, they would feel loved if you would give them structure and say, I know what's right and wrong, and I know that if you do this, it's right, and if you don't do that, it's right, and if you do this or you don't do this and you do that, that's going to be problematic. So that's why I, as the authoritative figure in, in said child's life, try to give them direction on what's expected of them and why that's expected and that why it's the better way to go. Uh, and that's what God has been trying to teach us in his word. Uh, the difference is parents are flawed. God isn't. The follower of, of, of Christ, the Christian, who's under the, the power of Jehovah, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, their eyes are upon the God of the Bible. What have we said many times? A lot of people are worshiping a God they made up because there's people that prefer that God be not who he says he is in his own inspired word, but who they wish he was. Or maybe a better statement is who they prefer he were. Now, see, your preference of God is wrong, because the way he actually is is correct, and even our preferences are flawed in a finite mind, because you'll find out that your preferred God turns out not to be a very good God at all. It may make you comfortable in a short term, but long-term, you feel very unfulfilled and lost. It's better to understand that the way God is, is right. Christians and followers of Jesus will tell you, if you ask them, that the Word of God has both convinced them of their sin and assured them of their forgiveness. you got to love that. What does forgiveness even matter if you have no idea about the, the levity of sin? I say this all the time. One of the names we have for the Son uh, who came to save us on behalf of the Father, we call him our Lord, but what else do we call him? Our Savior. But what did he save us from? I mean, if you don't know that, uh, if you have not been convinced of your sin, you've not been convicted of that sin, you don't understand the depravity and the levity of sin, that the, the wages of sin are death, and, you, and no one's ever taken the time, like sadly we do in too many churches. Now, we never really tell you what you're saved from. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to talk about wrath. All under, let's, it's just uncomfortable. Let's try to be nice. The ultimate goal of the follower of Jesus is not to be liked. The goal of the Word of God is to show us, first of all, what happened to us, why it happened, to show us the problem that we face with our sin, but then to also show us that we can be forgiven of our sin. But you've got to know all of it. You can't just know some of it. And that's why the true Christian will say, the Word of God has both convinced me of my sin, but it also has assured me of my forgiveness, which is why the Word of God has me walking in peace. I've been, yes, I've been convinced of my sin. Let's not shy away from that. Discomfort saved my life. Because as I, as I was uncomfortable with what I had become, 
I then discovered about the forgiveness that was also available to me. Praise his holy name. So, the word of God, you know, we, we, we want to be like the psalmist to have their whole lives brought in line with it. Listen to what the psalmist says. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Say, man, I, I hope that's who I become. I wish that's what the way I was. Do not let me stray from your commands. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Turn my heart toward your statutes. May my heart be blameless toward your decrees. You'll find this in Psalms 119 again, chapter 5. I'm sorry, verse 5 in Psalms 119, verse 5, verse 10, verse 26 and 27, verse 36, and verse 80. Maybe the assignment today is just read Psalms 119. The promises are before them as they pray, and the precepts are before them as they go about their daily task. I love that. The Christian, the disciple of Jesus, the promises are before us as we pray, and the precepts are before us as we go about our daily lives. How many times in your daily life, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you just cling to who God is? You, you cling to his, his commandments. You cling to his promises. You cling to the testimony of others. Scripture tells us as Christians, or you if you want to become a Christian, that all things work together for our good because we love God. The thought of God's ordering our circumstances brings us only joy. Doesn't that help you? When you see that in Scripture that he is sovereign, when you see his providence, when you see his grace, you see his mercy, you see he's omnipotent, you see he's omniscient, you see he's omnipresent. Now, sometimes the omnipresent bothers us because we realize he's with us while we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. But that can be helpful too. But isn't it joyful to know that he's worked all this out and that ultimately if we have been redeemed and belong to him, everything really is going to be all right? It may be tough getting there. But at the end of it all, we will be in the right standing with a holy God who meant for us to be in a personal relationship with him, in harmony with him, in the presence of him, fellowshipping with him, and we messed it up. And he said, but I'll bring it back because he's the only one who could do it. And we were looking to him saying, we can't do anything to fix what we did so he fixed it and began to work out things for, for our good, for those who love him. Now, remember Romans 8.28, it doesn't work for those that don't love God. If you don't love God and you've rejected God and you're not redeemed, don't think that everything going on in your life is going on for your own good. That's not necessarily true. But for the redeemed, for those who love God, he's ordering our circumstances for our own good, and that should bring us joy. We should cling to that promise. Christians are independent people, for they use the Word of God as a touchstone by which to test the various views that are put to them, and we will not touch anything which we're not sure that Scripture sanctions. Is that you? Do you do that? 
Yeah, let's let's land right there to close down this one. Be real careful what, what you touch and what you associate with. If you're if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, and you have been redeemed by God, then everything we do and everything we say and every uh, decision we make should come through the filter of the Word of God. And if anything that you're about to associate with, about to marry yourself to, about to commit to or allow to go on, or that you're going to endorse, that it does not meet the sanctions of the Holy Bible, stay away from it. But here's the uncomfortable part and kind of the dilemma. We need to be educated on what the Bible says about things so that we can make a proper decision when it comes to what we associate with, what we endorse, what we embrace, and what we allow. It's impossible for you to make those decisions if you don't know what the Bible actually says. I remember being that person, and it was very confusing. And I made a lot of decisions that if I'd known the Scriptures better, I would not have made. Have I been forgiven? Yes. Has the repercussions for those decisions all gone away? No. No, they haven't. So I would just, you know, learn from those that have gone ahead of you. Learn the precepts of God. Learn the commandments of God. Learn what he has said about all things and adhere to them. It will serve you well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Forgive me for where I failed you, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, Jehovah, for where I've let you down. But it's on me. I mean, if I, it's not like you withheld these things from me. I just took too long in some cases to learn them. But I thank you for redemption. And as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10, uh, I know that I should not be teaching this class. I know that the only thing good about me is due to the grace that you have afforded me. But I do make the commitment, Lord, as response to my redemption, not to earn it, that your grace on me will not be in vain. I will live out a life to, to say thank you for what you did and to give you a return on the price you paid for me on the cross. May you never look at my life and think that you went there in vain. Lord, I pray for any who need to, to, to reevaluate their commitment to your word, that it changes today as you draw them to you. And you can convince us and convict us of our sins, but at the same time you assure us of the forgiveness that you allow. In your holy name I pray. Thank you for being with us. If I can help you, rick at rickandbubba.com. Lord willing, I'll talk to you next week.